MacCast, Sunday, October 9th, 2022. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another episode of Mac News, Rumors, Hints, Tips, and all the goings-ons in our little Apple and Mac community. How you doing? Hopefully you are having a wonderful day. Things are going pretty well for me. I'm sitting here. Looking over the show notes, looking at what we're going to get into in this episode, and we've got a few things to talk about. It is a little bit slower right now. We're kind of waiting for that October event to happen. Surprised we don't have an announcement yet, although that may play into rumors we talked about last week, and we'll probably get into a little bit more this week as well, that, hey, maybe there isn't an event, and maybe Apple's just planning to do a press release later in the month with some new products, and that, that could be a possibility. But we'll get into some of those things. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about Apple Music. We're going to talk about uh, features in AirPods. We're going to get into some crash detection stuff. <laughs> Something going on with the new feature that uh, is kind of interesting. Um, a new law may be going into effect that could affect Apple in the EU. And we're going to talk about uh, iPhone SE and I also have some quick-fire Apple news, a bunch of little little stories to kind of cover. So a lot of little odds and ends this week, and that'll round out the news. And then we're going to get into some of your feedback. I have some follow-up on AppleCare, AppleCare support stories. We're going to talk about AirPods and a little charging issue. I have questions about uh, photos and NAS drives, and then uh, an audio question to get into will round out this episode of the MacCast. So it should be a great episode, should be a lot of fun. Let's just dive right into things. Starting off with a pretty big milestone for Apple Music. Apple announced via a press release that it passed 100 million songs on Apple Music. And they note every day over 20,000 singers and songwriters are delivering new songs and music to Apple Music. When Apple Music first launched back in 2015, you may remember they started out with just 30 million songs. So the service has more than tripled that number of songs in the past seven years. So pretty nice. And that is a lot of great music. I am a big fan of Apple Music. Not so sure I would have been at the beginning you know, Steve Jobs, if you remember when uh, iTunes first came out, was really pushing, you know, buying music. And obviously they had a monetary interest in that. They were selling music at the time, right? And uh, we've moved to a streaming world. And like it or not, that's sort of where we are. And Apple Music has made a pretty big impact. Uh, and uh, this number kind of shows that. They also pointed out the fact that in 2001, that was back when Apple delivered the first iPod, which offered a 1,000 songs in your pocket. So now with an iPhone and Apple Music, you have the ability to get 100 million songs in your pocket. So nice little, uh, nice little achievement for Apple and uh, you know, kind of a fun thing to point out at the top of the show today. With the latest 
beta of iOS, iOS 16.1, the AirPods beta firmware was released recently to owners of the AirPod Max and AirPods Pro. And I think we talked about this maybe on the last episode of the MacCast. And something that happened when that came out, I think that was beta 3, um, those owners of older AirPods, uh, AirPods Max and AirPods Pro devices, noticed that they had the settings for adaptive transparency, which is a feature that Apple announced as part of the new AirPods Pro 2. This led many, including myself, to think that Apple might be planning to support the feature on older products. Well, psych, turns out that was a mistake. At least that's what sources told Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. It's a bug, not a feature. And true to his sources' rumors, Apple has removed the option with the very latest beta that came out this week, iOS 16.1 Beta 4. So unfortunately, looks like adaptive transparency is still limited to the new AirPods Pro 2. And speaking of those AirPods Pro 2s, there seems to be a Find My bug with the new charging case. So a big feature of the new charging case you may or may not remember is that it has a little speaker built in. It also has a U1 chip, so you can use it for Find My functionality. It's actually my favorite feature of the new AirPods. And um, it seems like because of that, (laughs) the operating system is sort of treating it like an AirTag when it comes to batteries. So when the AirPods case or or the AirPods themselves, the batteries get low, what's happening is it's triggering the Find My notification to ask you to replace the battery. And it'll tell you replace left battery, replace right battery if it's the AirPods, which is a little confusing, or just replace case battery. And obviously, or maybe not so obviously, uh, the battery in the AirPods Pro is not user replaceable. You cannot get in there. I think we talked about iFixit last week. They did their teardown and they basically had to destroy the case. And you probably don't even want to try to get in to replace the battery because odds are you might damage it and that could be a little bit dangerous. So Apple's going to have to fix that in a future software update. Hopefully that will be coming uh, relatively soon. Apple's also sort of having a problem with its new crash detection feature. I guess no good no good deed goes unpunished. This is the new feature that's in the Apple Watch Series 8 and the new iPhone 14 Pros, and it's very likely going to save some lives. It is an amazing feature. Essentially, Apple has sensors in there that will detect if you're in a car crash and can call 911 and emergency services but looks like maybe they could have used a little bit of additional testing or at least there was one scenario that slipped past the engineering team and that was amusement parks specifically roller coasters um there have been a few false positive calls to 911 call centers that are near amusement parks now when the sensor goes off it does give you about i think 10 seconds to cancel the call but obviously if you're on a roller coaster that sensor could go off uh, before you actually see it so they are getting some false positives and it sort of makes sense uh the way the technology works is the iphone uses a high g-force sensor to detect extreme accelerations or decelerations um there's also a high dynamic range gyroscope to detect drastic changes in orientation so say 
going upside down uh, in a rollover accident or maybe around a loop in a roller coaster. And then they also use the mics to detect extreme sound levels, like maybe grinding and squealing of metal. Similar sounds that you might hear on a roller coaster, along with screaming uh, and all those sorts of things. So it kind of makes sense that it might kick in uh, when that's happening still. Um, in some testing that was recently done by the New York Times at crashing actual cars, the alerts didn't always go off. So it's a little bit puzzling. I think Joanna Stern over at the New York Times did this. They got a demolition derby driver to basically crash cars with iPhones and Apple Watches in them. And a lot of times it went off in the one car, but the moving car and not in the stationary cars. And Apple said that's because the testing conditions do not provide the iPhone with enough factors to actually trigger an alert. Specifically, they noted that the iPhones were not connected to Bluetooth or CarPlay to kind of get the iPhone to recognize that they were in the car or possibly they hadn't moved far enough um, before the impact to detect that someone was actually driving. So they were in kind of a small area. Maybe roller coasters are large enough that um, it gets past those factors. But, you know, odds are you're not connected to Bluetooth or CarPlay when you're uh, on a roller coaster unless you're connected to maybe Bluetooth headphones. But I would think it would be able to detect, you know, whether you're a car stereo or, or not. But maybe not. Um, so regardless... This looks like something Apple is going to have to go back and maybe tune the algorithm. Uh, maybe they can factor in geolocation stuff. So if you are near an amusement park, um, it could disable or alter the way the feature works. Although, uh, you know, it's possible someone could get in a car crash near a, an amusement park. So they'd have to be a little bit careful with that one. But maybe there's a way to detect the differences between roller coaster g-forces and and drastic changes in orientation and sound levels and all those things versus uh an actual car crash um and again hopefully this is something that they can tune and fix in software it seems like they should be able to do just that now here's a pretty interesting one the eu announced this week or a new law is coming to the eu In 2024, the European Parliament voted in favor of a directive to make USB-C charging the standard on a range of consumer electronics by the end of 2024. And this is definitely going to impact Apple. By the end of 2024, all mobile phones, tablets, and cameras sold in the EU will have to be equipped with a USB Type-C charging port. As a matter of fact, it's not just phones, tablets, and cameras. It also includes headphones and headsets, handheld video game consoles, portable speakers, e-readers, keyboards, mice, portable navigation systems, earbuds, laptops, and laptops that are rechargeable uh, any one of those devices using a wired cable and operating with power delivery up to 100 watts. They are going to have to be equipped with a USB Type-C port that allows for charging. Um, for most of the electronics, that's by the end of 2024. For laptops, actually, the obligation uh, doesn't have to kick in until spring of 2026. There are going to be some exemptions for different kinds of devices that are too small for a USB-C port. So think smartwatches, health trackers, some sports equipment. So if it's too small, you can get an exception. Um, but, you know, they are saying USB-C is going to be standard charging in the EU. Now, the directive also gives the European Commission some time to develop 
uh, what they call delegated acts by the end of 2024 that could also seek to to force companies to make their custom wireless charging solutions more open and meet interoperability standards. So they're also potentially going after wireless charging to make that open and standardized, although uh, for Apple, that's probably less of an impact now that they allow uh, their MagSafe charger to charge the Apple Watch, and it also supports the Qi charging standard. So that won't be such a big deal, but it does mean that Apple is likely going to have to, at least in the EU by 2024, replace their lightning connector with USB-C or offer USB-C charging. Honestly, I feel like it's not that big a deal at this point because most companies, including Apple, were already moving in this direction. You may remember that many analysts, including Mark Gurman and Ming-Chi Kuo, have already heard indications that Apple plans to move the iPhone to USB-C, possibly with the iPhone 15. There was even some early rumors, you remember, that it might have happened this year. Um, Gurman also recently commented that AirPods and Apple's MagSafe uh, Magic Mouse keyboard and trackpad are also going to adopt USB-C probably sometime next year. So I think we were already moving in that direction. Um, It also shouldn't obviously impact Apple's notebook or MagSafe, since MagSafe is in addition to USB-C, and you can still charge with USB-C. You don't have to use MagSafe on the notebook, and Apple had already moved to USB-C charging anyway with their notebook lineup. So not going to be a really big impact there. You know... The thing that I have uh, that bothers me about this, and I wrote in my notes that it's a concern. I don't think it's a concern, but I think it's just like a little bit short-sighted. Again, I don't think they had to enforce this with a law. I think technology would have sorted this out itself. It was already kind of moving in that direction. And I also worry about the date, 2024. You know, that's two years out. By then, there could be better or newer technologies, even smaller connectors, other kinds of things that allow better charging. And now you're going to have to have devices with maybe a legacy port in them uh, by that time. Or as Apple has expressed in the past, what could happen is it could make companies not want to develop something new uh, because they would then just be blocked from using it in the entire EU. So it takes away some incentives to develop better, newer other technologies. So I get the the idea behind wanting a standard. I think it makes it really convenient. Again, I think we were already getting there. I think the um, the companies were kind of self-correcting. Um, but yeah, we'll have to see. Also, you know, as wireless charging technology improves, uh, I think we can likely expect to see that supplant wired charging anyway so another way around this is companies could just move to wireless charging which is also i think why they have this delegated act clause built into this new law but we'll have to see um just one other thing related to charging this week apple also released a firmware update for its magsafe charger um your guess is as good as mine as to what it actually does but uh there was a firmware update for Apple's MagSafe charger that came out this week. Looking forward to a what's next for the iPhone SE, Apple's entry-level iPhone. It's looking like we could finally get a redesign and it would lose its chin along with the Touch ID button. The iPhone SE, I believe, 
pretty sure is the last iPhone in Apple's lineup with a Touch ID button, at least modern version of the iPhone. Uh, and uh, display analyst Ross Young is hinting that Apple would move to an all-screen design uh, with a notch. He didn't say whether or not Apple would uh, adopt the True Depth camera system or Face ID with the new iPhone. I think it's possible they could keep Touch ID and use the side button technology like they have for the iPad, but more likely I would think it's time that they can put uh, Face ID into the iPhone SE. So basically it would have a design very similar to the iPhone XR, and that was something that YouTuber John Prosser had hinted at, I think almost a year ago or earlier this year. So it's looking like they might be moving in that direction. Uh, Ross Young says it will be still a 6.1-inch display, and Apple would likely update the processor to be an A15 bionic so that's expected to maybe still come this year could be early next year and then speaking of iphones for the future it looks like apple's not going to have their own modem in an iphone at least until 2025 if you believe Haitung international securities analyst jeff Pooh, he says he expects apple to use qualcomm's snapdragon x75 modem in iphone models through 2024. So uh, I'm assuming that information is coming from maybe outstanding contracts and those sorts of things. We've talked for a while. Apple has been trying to develop their own uh, cellular modems for quite a while. Um, They even uh, bought Intel's modem business when uh, they sold that off. But that business had even been struggling to develop a 5G modem. So sounding like it's taking quite a bit longer and Apple is going to have to still rely on Qualcomm, at least for the near future. Also on the internal side of iPhones, Apple is paying more for their chips now, and it looks like they might be paying more later as well. A Nikkei Asia report claims that the A16 Bionic chip that Apple uses in its latest iPhones costs twice as much as A15 chips. Uh, They estimate the component cost at about US $110. Uh, The reason is likely due to the new process, the 4 nanometer process they're using to develop that chip. That's from TSMC versus the older 5 nanometer process. And according to the Economic Daily News, that price is going up in January. This was alluded to in some earlier reports that we discussed, but TSMC had informed Apple that on January 1st of 2023, they would raise the prices of their wafers, an 8-inch chip wafer, by 6%, 12-inch wafers by 3 to 5%. Originally, Apple had kind of said, or it was believed that Apple was going to try to reject that new pricing and push back on them. But latest uh, reporting this week claims that Apple has agreed to accept the new price increase. So uh, chip prices are going to be going up for Apple. We'll have to see if that translates into higher prices for us as consumers in uh, in notebooks and in uh, devices using Apple's A-series and M-series chips, which are all built on that technology by TSMC. So stay tuned for that. Prices could be going up or not. 
And now, uh, to round things out, like I said, we have a little bit of quick fire news, a couple quick stories here. Uh, the rumored 27 inch update for the Apple Studio display looks like it is in the works, will probably arrive in early 2023, at least according again to display analyst Ross Young. It's expected that the, stu- the display will be updated with mini LED backlighting and support for, uh, promotion. Uh, and a higher price tag. It's unclear if the new display will be a replacement to the current 27-inch studio display or just in addition. I would suspect the latter, that maybe they drop the price of the current 27-inch studio display and bring in uh, this new one, maybe with a slightly higher price tag because of the the LED backlighting and uh, ProMotion technologies. The Matter 1.0 standard is out. This is from the Connectivity Standards Alliance with its members. They formally released the Matter 1.0 standard and certification program this past week. Uh, The new standard is supported by Apple, Amazon, and Google, and it's a standard, if you don't remember, for smart home devices. It means it's going to bring better interoperability and compatibility across all of the devices. It means that new and existing products uh, can be updated to support this new standard, and that means smartphone accessories no more having to figure out does it work with HomeKit or not with HomeKit. If it works with Matter, it should work with and be supported by HomeKit. There's over 280 companies and members in the Matter group, so this is going to be a great thing for those of us who are fans, like myself, of smart home technology and HomeKit. And once Apple rolls out its updates to its software, um, then we should have, you know, hopefully, (laughs) ubiquitous support. Again, you're going to need to have uh, home devices and products that support matter. Good news is that companies can push out software updates to many existing devices to bring that support. We'll have to see how widespread that is, but it's looking pretty good at this point. And Apple does have support for the mat for matter in iOS 16.1 beta. So it should be coming to iOS and uh, Mac OS very, very soon. So I'm looking forward to getting a chance to play around with that and having access just to more smart home products that are going to work with HomeKit because that's been kind of the toughest part, right, about being an Apple fan and wanting to have full HomeKit support is it just hasn't been ubiquitous. There's been limited products and options, and hopefully this is really going to open that up. Another thing that is expected to happen maybe in October is an update to Apple TV. Uh, Both Ming-Chi Kuo and Mark Gurman have mentioned this. Uh, It's expected we would get an updated Apple TV with a new A14 Bionic chip. It would be updated with additional RAM, uh, moving up to 6 gigabytes from 4 gigabytes. An updated Siri remote, remote, probably with a U1 chip, so it would have Find My support, which would be really nice, and possibly a lower price so that Apple TV can be more competitive with things like Roku and Fire TV. So stay tuned for that maybe in October. Uh, Apple has laptops again now, not notebooks. This is something that was noticed by 9to5. It's purely a semantics thing, but uh, for the longest time, Apple used the nomenclature notebook instead of laptop. Um, And what 9to5 noticed was on Apple's website, in its marketing and its support articles, it's started to change that nomenclature back to laptop. Um, I believe the reason why Apple started using Notebook was mainly because 
a lot of their Intel notebooks, as you know or likely know, would get very, very hot, too hot to be able to actually use safely in your lap. So I'm guessing now that the crotch-scorching Intel temperatures are gone thanks to the new M-series chips that Apple feels like they can safely say no, a laptop again uh, because you can actually use your computer in your lap without, you know, burning yourself. So that's just a little change that's happening that's kind of interesting. And then uh, finally, apparently someone on Reddit tested the limits of Apple's new customizable lock screens and there, turns out, is a limit. The number... 200 in case you were wondering i don't know who would want to create 200 different customized lock screens but you can do up to 200 of them in case you don't know how to set up a customized lock screen it's uh, pretty easy with uh, ios 16 uh with the device unlocked you can um, you know unlock it with face id but don't swipe up to go to the home screen touch and hold on the lock screen and then you'll see a customize button at the bottom of the screen tap the customize button and then you can tap the plus button to add additional customized screen you can select your wallpaper you can then customize the home screen with different controls change the font change the color change the widgets and uh, set up the screens that you like. You can do as many of them, again, up to 200. And uh, then you can even do things like uh, swipe between them to quickly change home screens or lock screens. And then you can even link individual lock screens to different focus modes. So you can have, you know, a work lock screen, you can have a home lock screen, you can have a while I'm asleep lock screen, all displaying different information and different backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. So there you go. That is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank my show sponsor, ZocDoc. You know, if you listen to the show for a while, you know I am a fan of board games. I love to sit down with my family, uh, break out a game like Settlers of Ten or Ticket to Ride, King of Tokyo. Those are some of our favorites, and it's really great. But a game I really don't like to play is Hurry Up and Wait, especially when... I'm sick, I'm not feeling well, and I need to see a doctor. It Nothing's more frustrating than needing to go see your doctor and finding out, hey, doctor's booked up, I'm going to be waiting weeks, maybe months to get an appointment. It's incredibly frustrating. And that's why I use the ZocDoc app to find quality in-network doctor, doctors who can see me within days, not weeks. ZocDoc makes it easy to find quality doctors in your network and in your neighborhood. Plus, they have real verified patient reviews that allow you to find the right doctor for you, one who can actually, say, remember your name. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten your teeth fix an achy back, get a mole checked out, or anything else, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting delivery to your house. You can search, find, and book doctors with just a few taps. Find and review local doctors, read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments, so now when you walk into that doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com to find the doctor that's right for you 
and book an appointment in person or remotely that works for your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I am one of them. It's my go-to whenever I need to find and book a quality doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast to download the ZocDoc app for free, then start your search for a top-rated doctor today, many available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com slash MacCast, ZocDoc.com slash MacCast, and a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. So one thing we were talking about last week is we had a listener who unfortunately had a little bit of a frustrating story, frustrating experience with Apple support. And that was Josh. And um, Josh followed up with me after that episode aired and uh, had a couple of clarifications. There were some things in the story that got a little bit off. So I do want to clarify those. And then I want to share another story because I asked you, and I think the question from Josh was, is, you know, has the quality of Apple Care or Apple support gone down? And I think, you know, my consensus overall was, no, that just occasionally, you know, sometimes you have a rough experience. It's happened to, I think, a lot of us. But uh, let me clarify some things about Josh's story first. And the first thing to mention is, is that he did finally receive his replacement Apple Watch, the Apple Watch Series 8 watch that Apple gave him as a replacement for his Series 7 because they had discontinued the Series 7. And he says it's wonderful. It is working great. He has no more issues. His issues are resolved. So good news there. Um, but getting back with uh, some of his points of frustration, um, he said, you know, overall, the frustration was not, uh, I think, the overall quality of Apple's support. It was the fact that there was a lot of delays and really poor communication from Apple through the process. Um, one thing I was mistaken about was I had said in my reporting that he had waited six to seven days for a return box. It wasn't actually the return box. It was the label uh, for the return. And that was an email. And so it took six or seven days to get an email, which is a little bit odd, right? Uh, why it would take so long to get the return label for the email, who knows? He also said, just in general, there was a lack of communication on how long things would take. So when Apple received his uh, Apple Watch, um, they weren't really clear about how long the repair was going to take, when he could expect to get it back and that sort of thing. So that was a little bit frustration. And then finally, um, there was all the communication from the personal reps that would get assigned to his case. So when you have kind of an escalated case, Apple has a higher level support tech that they'll kind of assign to you. And I've experienced this myself. Uh, the issue is they have or tend to have really odd schedules. So you'll call and talk to one. And he's, he gave the example, like I would talk to a personal rep on Friday and then they would tell me, well, I'm not going to be back in the office again until next Wednesday. So I can't get back to you for, you know, several days. And uh, then often what would happen is he would get a call from a different personal support rep in the meantime, and then they would start to be handling things. And now he's got two, maybe three personal support reps. They're all on different schedules. And it became very confusing on who he should be working with, who he should be talking to, and that sort of thing. So, you know, that was sort of where the levels of frustration came from. It wasn't the overall like resolution of what was going on. It was just very confusing, working with a lot of people, a lot of miscommunication, poor communication, that sort of thing. So that was his experience. But then I also asked, you know, what kinds of experiences have you had recently? I had shared my experience with ordering or trying to order my iPhone and, you know, getting my address wrong. And there was some frustration there, but ultimately again, Apple resolved it and, um, 
did it very, very well. But Dennis wrote in this week to share an actual positive experience. He said, hey, I recently accidentally cracked the screen on my Apple Watch Series 6. And originally he thought, hey, I'm going to just, you know, maybe get a new Apple Watch because I have a Series 6 and it's maybe just time. But when he went to check, he discovered that his Apple Watch Series 6 was still covered under Apple Care Plus through November. So that meant he could get a screen replacement for just $69 US, basically the deductible for that. Um, so he contacted Apple about doing that. They said, hey, yep, we can replace that, but we'll need you to send in the watch. We have to keep it for about five days. And uh, he said, that's fine. He sent it in. But in the meantime, he thought, hey, I have an old Apple Watch Series 3. Um, maybe I can get that up and running to kind of uh, work as a temporary until I get my Apple Watch back. Well, uh, his current Apple Watch was already on watchOS 8, and that was his backup. So after kind of trying to restore things and get that back up and running, he realized the uh, Series 3 Apple Watch can't run the latest operating system, so it wouldn't be able to kind of be used at that point. And uh, he had gone into the Apple Store to get some help, and the geniuses said, hey, you know what, though? We can give you some cash for that old Series 6 if you want to turn it in for basically recycling, I would imagine, at this point. But he said, hey, we can give you a $30 gift card for that old Apple Watch. So he chose to take that option, got the $30 Apple gift card, and uh, in a few days, his Apple Watch Series Series 6 came back, and the screen was replaced. But what he also noticed was it looks like they maybe even replaced the case as well, because he said, hey, I had some scratches on my case that are no longer there. So I don't know. I've, I've kind of had a similar experience when I've sent devices in for a screen repair where the case seems to come back in better condition. So I don't know if Apple just replaces the case and then takes those cases and refurbishes them or if they have a process for refurbishing um, some of their casings. I'd be curious to know that. So any insiders at Apple, if you have insight as to what they actually do, uh, let me know. But I thought that was great. You know, Dennis had a great support experience. They took care of him, got his Apple Watch Series 6 back up and running again. And I would imagine it should run pretty well for another few years uh, with that new screen in there. So congratulations, Dennis, and thank you for sharing that positive experience. And if you have an experience with Apple Care that you'd like to share with the MacCast, um, positive or negative, doesn't really matter. Uh, shoot your stories to maccast.gmail.com. And if you want to do a quick, you know, two, three minute audio comment, that would be great as well. So here's an interesting story I received from Pensacola Craig. He wrote in to express some frustration and maybe issues with the charging case for AirPods, AirPods Pro, and Beats Fit Pro. He actually has all three, and he says he's experienced kind of this issue with charging the earbuds in all three of those cases. As a matter of fact, he says he's even talked to friends and colleagues who have expressed on occasions having the same issue, and that is when you put the buds back into the case, you know, it's got the little magnetic mechanism that should, you know, suck them in and kind of lock them into place in the charging case so that the contacts um, make uh, the connection correctly and uh, charge the buds. But he says, you know, sometimes it just doesn't line up exactly correctly. And uh, to make things worse, if that doesn't happen, a lot of times the buds stay on and they actually continue to drain battery 
rather than charge. And that can be a little bit frustrating because you go to pop your headphones back in and they're not charged. And he says there's kind of really no way to know unless you're really paying attention when you drop it in the case that, you know, the light is blinking, that you've actually seated the bud correctly. Um, you know, outside of that, you'd have to kind of look at the on device status on your iOS device, the little widget, uh, when they're actually connected to your Bluetooth. So Craig kind of feels like Apple should have a little bit better indicator of when the buds are charging. As a matter of fact, he said it would be great if they could include an indicator on the charging case for each earbud. And I will admit that I have experienced this maybe once or twice, but for me, I think it's pretty rare. Um, I just, I'm not so sure that this is really a widespread problem. I get what Craig is talking about. It's definitely frustrating when you go to use your ear earbuds and they're not charged when they've been sitting in the charging case, maybe because they're misaligned or maybe because some dirt got down in there and it's not making good contact. But you know, Apple's indicator is there. I don't think it takes that much extra time to just kind of take a little look on their support website. Apple says that the way the indicator works on the case is if your AirPods are in the case and the lid is open, the light is going to show the charging status of the AirPods themselves. Uh, when your AirPods aren't in the case, the light shows the status of your case. And green means fully charged, amber means uh, less and less than one full, and amber means less than one full charge remains. So, what do you think? You know, should there be a more obvious visual indicator on the case itself of the status, current charging status of ear, each earbud? Do you think that's something that's necessary or would be helpful? I'd be curious to get your opinion. Send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. Also received this week an email from Dave who said, Hey, I have an older Mac Mini. I'm looking to upgrade my Mac Mini and my current setup a little bit. I currently have a bunch of direct attached external drives totaling about six gigabytes. I use these for backup. Good job, Dave, using them for backup, but also for things like storage and uh, specifically his photo library. And he says, I also have a 2015 MacBook Air and I would love to be able to access all of the files from the external drives uh, to be able to organize photos and add metadata to videos that I have already ripped. And so I'm considering a network-attached storage drive, an NAS drive, and I'm wondering, can I put my photo library on there and then connect both Macs to the same photo library? So when you launch the Photos app by holding down the Option key, you can actually pick a photo library. You can actually switch between photo libraries. You can only ever have one main system library if you're using iCloud Photo Library, but you can connect you know, to other photo libraries. And he says, you know, can I do this so that I can access that from a NAS with my MacBook Air and my new Mac Mini? And in theory, this sounds like a really, really good plan and something that would be very convenient. Unfortunately, in practice, it's not always a great idea. Um, I would say if you want to do editing on a single photo library, you're best to use the syncing technology that Apple provides through iCloud Photo Library. Sometimes people don't want to upload their photos to the cloud or don't want to um, 
pay the extra storage that it would cost to have all of your photos in the cloud. And I totally get that. So a NAS seems like it might be a really good workaround, but uh, there can be some issues. And I found a really nice article from Fat Cat Software. They make Power Photos, which is a great application for kind of splitting up and uh, creating additional photo libraries and, and kind of organizing your photos. We've talked about it on the show in the past. So check that out if you, if you want. But um, they're pretty versed in, you know, like managing multiple photo libraries and having photo libraries in, in other locations. And even Apple doesn't generally recommend using uh, your photo library on a network attached storage device. And if you do, they say, make sure that uh, for networking, you're connecting using SMB two or three and not Apple's older uh, AFP protocol. So you have to be kind of careful about uh, what you're doing, because again, this can lead to or give you a higher chance of kind of getting corruption. Another thing to note is just that photos is not optimized to be working over a network. Um, so you're often very, you're often better off with a locally attached storage drive. Another thing to consider is that, uh, the photo library is expected to be on a Mac OS formatted drive. And most NAS drives have their own formatting or, um, aren't, you know, Apple file, Apple file system or Mac OS extended protocols. So, um, if you have a NAS drive that doesn't support, that drive format, you're probably going to end up having to use like a disk image on there. And then you would have to mount that image. So that's going to take away some of the convenience and that sort of thing. I actually did test this like on um, just my Drobo and I was able to use a disk image, APS, APFS formatted and uh, access my photo library from it. But again, it's generally not recommended. So I think it's something you can do. Um, but I would say do at your own risk, because even if you get it working, like I said, it's not optimized. You also open yourself up for more chances of correct, uh, corruption, especially if you're connecting multiple Macs to the same photo library. And if you were to say have both, um, both machines accessing the same photos or same photo library at the same time, it's not really designed for that. That's not a use case that Apple had set up for it. So I think a better option if you need to take your photo library between multiple Macs would to be would be to get like a really nice Thunderbolt or USB-C solid state drive, portable drive that is bus powered and then just literally sneaker net that back or f back and forth, i.e., you know, eject it from one computer, take it over to the other computer, use it there. I know it's less convenient than just doing it wirelessly over a network with a network attached storage device, but Overall, it's going to be a safer way, uh, a safer way to do that. But that's just my opinion. Uh, maybe there's some of you out there who are successfully using a photo library on a NAS. If you are doing it, I'd love to hear your stories. I'd love to hear you share your experiences. How is it working for you? Have you ever had any issues? How are you managing backup, handling backup and all that sort of stuff? Um, so I'd love to hear about that. Uh, shoot your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. And then the last thing that I have for you this week is something related to audio. I think on a recent episode of the MacCast, I was discussing my use of Audio Hijack Pro from Rogue Amoeba. I use it for podcasting to capture audio um, specifically when I'm using applications to do interviews. So if I'm using Zoom or Skype, Audio Hijack allows you to 
basically hijack or grab the audio from that, uh, mix it in, say, with the microphone that I'm talking to you on now, and then pass that through. You can do filters and processing and then pass that through to a recording. And you can record to multiple formats, you know, high quality AIFF or MP3, whatever you want to do. So it's a great application for kind of routing audio and recording audio. Uh, because I had that conversation, Fred wrote in to ask me if there were solutions for sending audio uh, to multiple outputs. He says, you know, I don't need to take multiple inputs and, and record it to a single source. What I'd like to be able to do is take audio and send it to multi multiple outputs on a Mac, both analog and digital. So maybe to the internal speakers and to, you know, a USB speaker or a speaker connected to the 3.5 millimeter jack, all those sorts of things. Can I send multiple audio out? And you actually can. There is a built-in way to do this using the audio MIDI setup application to create a multi-channel output. So if you go into applications utilities and open up audio MIDI setup, um, you can create a multi-channel output device by clicking on the little plus sign. And when you do that, it'll give you an interface and you can add any of the outputs that are on your Mac using the use checkbox and you can combine them. So two, three uh, different audio outputs and you can send the audio there. And once you have it set up, you just select the multi-audio output as a destination from the sound preferences. And then anything you play will actually play out through those multiple outputs. There's even drift correction um, that you can turn on if you notice the speakers kind of going out of phase or something like that. Um, so uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, the built-in output, though, doesn't give you much control. Specifically, you can't really control things like volume. So your volume keys don't work anymore when you're um, when you're using that. At least they didn't for me. So it's somewhat limited in terms of its functionality, but you definitely can do it. Now, if you want more control... Uh, once again, Rogue Amoeba has another great product. It's called Loopback, and I'll link to it in the show notes at MacCast.com. And what this does is this gives you cable-free routing on the Mac. So basically, you can take any combination of input sources, uh, microphones, applications, those sorts of things, and you can combine them with any other combination of outputs. So you can go to multi-output, you can go to multiple monitors, so headphones and, and those sorts of things, and fully control and route all of the audio on your Mac. It's pretty incredible, very powerful, great application. And what's nice about um, Loopback is it gives you full control over the audio, including volume controls for each route that you're doing. So you can control volume levels of different outputs, inputs, and all those sorts of things. You can toggle the inputs and outputs on and off. Like it gives you a ton of flexibility and control. So Fred, that's probably what you're going to want to go with if you're doing really complex multiple audio out. But you could try the built-in version for free uh, first and see if that works for your needs. I'm not sure the specifics, but that's how you do it, and that's how you can route multiple audio. Now, I'm sure there is other applications and ways to do this. I mean, one is to use an audio output like Mixing Board, right, and Mixer, and you could do it all physically as well uh, with a digital analog, um, you know, 
device or something like that. So lots of options out there. I'm sure some of you have hints and tips and tricks. And if you'd like to share those with us, shoot us an email, send us an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. But with that, that is going to do it for the episode for this week. Thank you for hanging out with me. Before I leave you, I do want to take a moment and thank a couple of supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to MacCast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269-281-MAC-IM-9, and you can leave a voicemail there. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash themaccast or... Uh, find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Mm-hmm.